Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wigman. Former game warden Stephen Callan grew up in Orland, where he spent his high school years playing baseball and basketball, hunting and fishing. He never missed an opportunity to ride along on patrol with his father, a California fish and game warden. He graduated from California State University and attended graduate school at Chico State University in Sacramento and attended graduate school at CSU Sacramento. In 1974, Steve Callan was hired by the California Department of Fish and Game and spent most of his 30-year enforcement career in Shasta County and earned numerous awards for his work in wildlife protection. His first book, Badges, Bears, and Eagles, The True Life Adventures of a California Fish and Game Warden, was a 2013 Book of the Year Award finalist. His memoir, The Game Warden's Son, was a Best Outdoor Book of 2016 Award winner. His latest book is A Henry Glantz Mystery, The Case of the Missing Game Warden. Steve Callan, welcome. Thank you very much, Nancy. I really appreciate you having me on your show. Now, in your career, when you were growing up or in high school, did you uh, did writing appeal to you? Yes, I, I've actually enjoyed writing my whole uh, the whole time I was growing up. And, and when I was in college, I actually enjoyed writing term papers. And uh, and uh, so I just kind of carried that on from from my young, younger years. So obviously, your dad was a huge influence on your career choice and you would ride along with him as a youngster. And I would think that you enjoyed nature from a very young age. Oh, absolutely. Nature is everything to me. It's, it's what drives my writing. And basically I, I try to include uh, a conservation message in everything I write, even if it's fictional, I, I try to include conservation messages because that's the reason I write. I'm trying to, to do my part um, for nature. In fact, that occurred to me that you are, it seemed that at heart, you're a teacher. I'd like to think that. Now, as I'm reading your book, I kept thinking, gosh, this sounds so authentic that I would think you drew a lot of it from your life. Obviously, your knowledge of being a game warden, but so much of it seems like it could be true of you, almost like a memoir. Well, I've, I've heard that from several people um, and I, I have to say that uh, you draw from your experiences and your knowledge, and and uh, and obviously I drew from that. But the um, the, the the subject Henry Glantz is a, is a combination of several several people. Well, people who are familiar with Chico, for example, will recognize so many of the landmarks and events that you mention that are true in Chico and the surrounding area. And you begin your book, uh, you say it was late afternoon in early December, 1956. Now your main character was not, uh, that was not uh, him in 1956. Your main character is a young man who's a college student. So why did you start your story in 1956? I wanted to introduce the readers to veteran Northern California game warden, Norman Bettis. And, and I wanted to tell his story. And, and so the readers would, would basically under, you know, get to liken Norman Bettis and, and, and then whatever happens to Norman Bettis would have, would affect the way they, they like the rest of the book. So um, I wanted to, to, to get that established and then bring in Henry Glantz as a young boy. And so the readers would understand uh, why he f chose to do what he did and become a, a game warden and, and the, his motivation for continuing on and, and trying to find out what happened to the, to the game warden years before. Well, one thing that adds to the authenticity of your book is the dialogue 
And I'm thinking you must have paid close attention to the way the people that you interacted with when you were a game warden or that your dad, because you reproduced the way they talk. And I liked reading it. I hear it in my head when I'm reading it, the way these guys talk. So I would like you to tell us, for example, um, early in your book, you introduced this guy named Hollis Bogar, and you have him talking with this acquaintance of his, and they sound just like you might hear these kind of characters talking to each other. Now, one thing that they talk about is uh, these kind of ducks. And they talk about these fancy restaurants that now want some fancier kind of produce or animals to feed their guests. And one of them says the restaurants in Chinatown will take whatever he brings them, but they won't pay more than two bucks or anything but mallards, sprig, and cans. Now, I know mallards, but sprig and cans? Yeah, um, sprig means pintails and cans means canvas bags. And then at, at, in those days, those were the most popular, well, they still are the most popular uh, table table bird, you might say. Uh, they're larger and, and most, most uh, people that hunt ducks think they taste, taste the best. Uh, canvasbacks are pretty much, their populations have, have gone down over the years and, and are not as, were not as common. So as, as I said in the book, they hadn't seen any in, in several years. But, in two uh, years, you, you had this yeah. character say, we ain't shot a canvasback in two years. And right. he's chugging a beer. And then he says, you just base these other ducks, I'm assuming the gadwalls, said base them in wine, a little melted butter, and those guys in San Francisco won't know the difference. Yeah. Now, I have a confession, <laughs> Steve. So in preparation for this, I had an opportunity to eat at kind of an upscale restaurant that had duck on the menu. Now, I seen, I think about maybe 40 years ago, I ate some duck in China. I don't remember what it tasted like, but it was tolerable. So about a week or so ago, I ordered duck in this menu. And I took one bite, and it was the most awful thing I've ever tasted. And this was a nice restaurant, and I'd like their other things. So I wondered, well, is this, does duck really taste this bad? Steve, what was I missing? No, what you probably ate was what they call a Peking duck, which is a domestic, you know, domestic white duck. Which uh, it, it's unlawful to sell wild ducks in restaurants. Um, so that what they when they when they have duck on the menu, uh, it's usually some, uh, one of those white domestic Peking ducks that's probably been feeding on whatever on these little pellets that they you know they they buy it in a bag and feed them. And there's absolutely no comparison from from my years that I when I used to get all excited when I knew I was going to have duck dinner my, when my mom was going to cook ducks. Uh, that was, that's still one of my favorite, favorite dinners of all time. So I know what you're talking about. It's, it's almost like comparing apples and oranges. It, there's no comparison between a, eating a domestic duck and, and, a, and a wild rice-fed duck. Well, this had some kind of sauce on it or gravy, and it was really right. tough. So tough I could barely <laughs> chew it. Is that typical? Uh, not really. If, if if a wild duck is is cooked right, uh, you'd feel a totally different way after you finished your dinner. Okay, so we got these guys, and their uh, ducks are are valuable, so they want to get these ducks to uh, make a profit. And then you reproduce some more of this vocabulary a little later in your book. And I would like for you to read, if you don't mind, Steve, sure. read some of, a couple of these characters talking um, where there's a guy named Pinky. And uh, would you read that section where Pinky's sitting behind a wooden desk piled with scattered bills? I'll be happy to. I'm going to have to back up just a hair to, to sure. do that. Pinky was sitting behind a wooden desk piled with scattered bills, a half-eaten bologna sandwich, and two empty beer bottles when Dud Boger and Blake Gassino entered the small office near the farm's entrance. The zipper on Pinky's blood-spattered white overalls had given way to pressure, partially exposing his enormous belly. Hanging on the wall behind Pinky's desk was a framed photograph of an older, 
bald-headed gentleman bearing a striking resemblance to Pinky. Under the photograph hung a wooden plaque inscribed with the words, Head Turkey. Where the hell you been, boomed Pinky. I thought you said you'd be here by 10. Pinky, this here's Blake Gassineau, the young man I told you about. Come this winter, he'll be the one delivering the goods. Is that so, said Pinky. How do I know this pimple-faced punk ain't some kind of cop, or worse yet, a damn game warden? Your old man and me done business together for 20 years, said Dud, pointing to the photograph on the wall. Ain't it enough that I'm vouching for him? Yeah, I'm just giving you a hard time, said Pinky, standing and extending his hand to Gassino. Welcome aboard, partner. Gassino extended his own hand and found it quickly engulfed in the vice-like grip of Pinky's massive paw. Thanks, said Gassino, grimacing as Pinky stared into his eyes and continued to apply pressure. You kill him, gut him, and deliver him to me. If you keep your mouth shut and nobody else finds out about our arrangement, we'll get along just fine. Do you want anything besides ducks, said Gassino. What do you have in mind? I don't know, whale, pheasants, deer? Sure, said Pinky, finally releasing Gassino's hand. I've got customers who'll pay good money for quail and pheasants. If I can't sell the venison, I'll throw it in the grinder and feed it to the turkeys. Turkeys eat deer meat, said Gassino, flexing the fingers in his right hand. Turkeys will eat damn near anything as long as it's small enough to slide down that long gullet of theirs. I've seen them fighting over frogs, mice, even snakes. I didn't know that, said Gassino, feeling more comfortable in the company of his new business partner. My super duper grinder crushes everything I toss in the hopper, even bones. Whatever comes out, my birds eat. They don't call them gobblers for nothing. This is former game warden, Stephen Callan, and he's reading from a novel. He has written nonfiction prior to this book, but this one is a mystery story, The Case of the Missing Game Warden. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Palisidro author Stephen Callan, who is the son of a game warden, and he has written a book, The Game Warden's Son. And he's just been reading a conversation between some of the characters in this new book, this novel. And so he sets up these guys who are not very likable guys, <laughs> but it, I would imagine that these kinds of activities that they're up to are, I won't say typical, but are realistic, Steve, in your experience. Absolutely. Yes. I, I, from my experience and from talking to other, op, you know, wildlife officers who have dealt with these kind of people over the years, that's exactly the way they'd be. And uh, they do just about anything for money. Well, we uh, used, continue to tell us about these guys that we don't like very much from what they do. So would you uh, read a little bit more in your book? Uh, in Chapter 5, you tell us about a guy named Riddle. So what's going on in this scene?
Riddle hopped in the driver's seat, lit up a cigarette, and slowly headed west. When he'd gone a half mile, he flipped on his headlights and began searching every county road within five miles for any sign of a game warden. Gassineau, Boger, and Stillwell crouched forward and began a slow trudge through the recently rained on rice stubble. Every time they came to a rice check, they ducked into the weeds and listened to the distant ticka ticka tick of feeding ducks. Once they were within a hundred yards of the oncoming birds, Gastineau motioned with his hand for the others to drop to their knees and begin a tedious belly crawl up to the anticipated firing line. With knees and elbows caked in mud, all three men crept forward, stopping at 15-yard intervals to rest and listen. Like a massive harvesting combine, the ravenous ducks ate their way across the field. In a continuous effort to store nutrients and maintain muscle mass for the long migration back to the breeding grounds, they played a game of avian leapfrog. Jumping into the air, flying 100 feet or more, then landing again and feeding at the, at the front of the line. The roar of wing beats and constant chatter had become almost deafening by the time Gassineau, Boger, and Stillwell reached a point directly in the path of the approaching flock. Gassineau pointed at Stillwell and gestured for him to take the left flank. Stillwell slowly backed away and crawled 40 yards to his designated shooting location. Boger, who had engaged in this exercise countless times before, already had assumed his position 40 yards to Gastineau's right. The first wave of ducks, for some unknown reason, veered to the west and avoided coming within the range of the poacher's shotguns. All three men remained perfectly still, lying on the wet ground while peering through the three-foot-high weeds and matting, matted grass that occupied each rice check. The avian sympathy grew louder and louder until it reached a crescendo and suddenly stopped. The night had become deathly quiet and Blake Gastineau knew why. Either he or one of his fellow duck poachers had snapped a twig or accidentally bumped the magazine with his shotgun. They had been discovered. Up they rose, the flock of 10,000 ducks producing an ear-shattering clamor so loud their distress calls could be heard from miles away. In the midst of the pandemonium came a volley of shotgun blasts in rapid succession. Boom, 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 boom. Ducks fell from the sky like rain. Unable to identify their targets, Gastineau and company fired into the panic throng. Boom, boom, boom. Some victims folded their wings and tumbled to the ground while others fluttered for a distance before succumbing to their wounds. Boom, boom, boom. The stench of exploding gunpowder fouled the cold night air and smoke engulfed the shooters as they continued their merciless onslaught. This is author and former game warden, Stephen Callan, and he's reading his a, a mystery, his first novel, A Henry Glantz Mystery, The Case of the Missing Game Warden. Now, the cover of your book, and as you were reading this, I was looking at the cover of your book because you took this photograph. I did. And uh, would you describe it, please, for the listeners, what your cover looks like? Well, I wanted it, um, one of the suggestions of the publisher was to, if I was going to provide my own cover, was to find uh, something that appeared mysterious. And I couldn't imagine anything more mysterious and more uh, true to the subject matter than this photograph. I took it just as the sun came out, came up about five miles from Chico, uh, uh, south of Chico, in the out in the wet wetlands, and I just happened to catch some some waterfowl in the foreground. So um, uh, I I felt that it pretty much um, hit the spot as far as, as far as the, the subject matter I wanted. So I was imagining it was a sunset, but you're saying this is a sunrise. Sunrise, yes. There's your character. Uh, your characters do get up early in your yes. book. Yes, they get up early and they stay up all night sometimes. So we have these characters that we meet that we don't particularly like, but then you introduce a character that we do like. And 
this young man, uh, this, the title, part of the title of this book is a Henry Glantz mystery. And so we meet this young man named Henry Glantz. And we think, oh, he's going to be a game warden. But that wasn't what he thought he was going to be. And what did he plan? What was his first choice as a profession, Steve? Well, Henry, Henry grew up playing baseball and was left-handed and had already thrown three or four no-hitters by the time he's 12 years old in Little League. And he had always wanted to become, become a big league baseball player. And he was offered a, 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 a full-ride scholarship to, to uh, Stanford. to a, a, a very well-known university. <laughs> and and, uh, and it, I, I don't want to give away the story too much. No, no, but no. But I, I do know that you played baseball in high school. And did, any, did you ever entertain the notion of being a baseball player? I think every, every, everybody, I, every kid I ever knew had the same, uh, same idea at one point in their life. It's, uh, and uh, um, this was one of those cases where, where it, was, it would probably, you know, probably ring a bell with, with a lot of young men, you know, at that age. So um, and I, I don't want to get any closer into the, to the, how it would have happened. But anyway, that's, yeah, that I did have that, that feeling for a long time. Well, you have one of your characters say, next to playing baseball, Henry's always wanted to do something with wildlife. He's loved animals in the outdoors ever since he was a little boy. If there's a bird book Henry hasn't read, I've never heard of it. So I thought, now this sounds like this is true, Steve, when he was growing up, loved animals and outdoors. Did you have lots of bird books yourself? Yes. yes. <laughs> I, 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 I think I explained in some of the other, or the other two books, you know, my childhood, I had a, a what, you know, what you might call a, a storybook childhood having a father who was a game warden and who loved to, to skin dive and, and, uh, and was always out in the woods. And uh, um, I got to do all these things that a lot of kids never dreamed of. So, so that definitely had a lot to do with the decision or the, the storyline. Well, I know now in your current life, you love to photograph birds. And so this has probably been very a longstanding love of yours. And particularly now with the cameras that are, phones that we have you must really enjoy photographing birds yes i do yeah we um kathy and i both love wildlife and and uh do every chance we get we go out and photograph um not just birds but other wildlife now you just introduced i'm going to call her a character it's the person to whom you dedicate this book this book the dedication is for kathy and as i'm reading your story this young man henry glance when he goes off to college he meets this young girl who thinks, gosh, she's just perfect for him. And I wondered if there was any truth in how you and Kathy actually met. Yeah, you might, you might say that. We're, we both were at a very, had a lot in common and, and uh, um, hit it off, you know, right off the bat. So, well, yeah, because, the, yeah, I know that you and she are both avid anglers and kayakers and bird watchers and scuba divers and so she from the very beginning has been an outdoor a lover of outdoors like you so is that part of the reason you and she yes. met <laughs> yes i i think that can that sums it up and kathy was a science teacher so she she was a biology and so our zoology major in college and um i'd say we had a a lot in common yeah, you might say that. Well, about the time I started reading your book, you mentioned a biology major. I met this young man who was just such a dear, and he was a biology major at Chico State, and he wanted to work in the state parks. I thought, hmm, this story sounds familiar. And uh, I just thought, well, this story that you're telling about this young man who is studying biology and he was he was a serious student and, and i assume that was probably true for you too well henry was a little bit above above <laughs> quite a bit quite a bit above above my uh, mental capacity i i was what you might call a a little bit better than average student but i wouldn't say i was in, in his league 
but I uh, kind of, Henry's a kind of a combination of several people. I, I had a, a good friend in college who actually did have a photographic memory and was just as I described in the book. And uh, so anyway, that that's kind of where that came from. In fact, I know an anesthesiologist who happens to be French, and she didn't claim to be smart, but she said she had a good memory. And so she could make good grades because of her good memory. Yeah. And that's kind of what you're saying now. Um, yeah. Then you also had an interesting character. And you say, uh, so Henry says, what's your story? And he says, after three semesters as a French major, uh, he, is, he used up his uh, savings traveling around Europe. And he uh, went to this small beach town in Spain where he played ping pong all day. Yeah. And so this guy, instead of being a pool shark, was a ping pong shark, if I could call him that. What gave you that idea? Well, I have to say, one of my roommates in college did exactly that. And uh, <laughs> uh, he went to Europe with a friend, took out a, took out a college loan, and uh, used part of it to go to Europe with a friend. And, and they ended up spending, I think they spent close to a year there. And then when he came back and found out he had to pay all this was back, he he uh, got serious and switched his major to uh, accounting. Yep. <laughs> and uh, and and then actually became a very important accountant in Sacramento. So that's that's the true story there. My guest is Steve Callan. He has now written a novel. His previous books have been nonfiction. He has written a mystery, The Case of the Missing Game Warden. And he introduces us to some of the characters that our young protagonist, Henry Glantz, is young at, at this point in the story. And there are people that he meets have been friends since second grade. And um, part of this, uh, one of the characters, Larry, says, I'll tell you a little story about something that happened to us about eight years ago. Hank, and that's what some of his friends call Henry, Hank and I planned to go fishing down in Temecula, where we were living at the time, but our adventure turned out to be much more than we bargained for. So this other guy who's listening says, now you have us hooked. Tell them the rest, Hank. And Hank says, no, you start it, you finish it. So what is the story that Larry told them? Well, Larry told him the story about when when he and and Henry were eleven, just about to go, just about to become twelve years old. They were on their way to go on the way to fish in Vail Lake down in Southern California near Riverside, and they were at the top of this hill and and stopped uh, on their bikes, and they just happened to have a set of binoculars with them, and and. Down at the bottom of the hill, this car came around a corner and, and stopped in front of this little little uh, flume, you know, like a little ditch with water in it. And they noticed that this this family of, of Canada geese were were in the flume, and there was a a gander and a, and a hen and, and about ten goslings. And this car stops, and suddenly this this uh, shotgun or I, I, in, a, in a book, I believe I, I said it was a rifle, uh, was stuck out the window and fired a shot and hit this hit the gander. And uh, so Henry races down the hill on his bike and reaches into the, this guy's car while they're out there trying to chase down this goose and takes the keys out of his car so they can't escape. And, and, uh, and the... Uh, the game warden eventually comes along because the landowner, his name was Mr. Tibbetts in the book, in the book uh, he showed up right behind the game warden and, and they um, confronted these two outlaws. And uh, it was because of Henry that, that he had, that he was able to catch these guys. And uh, the game warden, Ed McCullough was his name in the book. He, he admonished uh, Henry about reaching in somebody's car and getting their keys and said the best thing to do probably from now on is, is just get, take down a license number and, and then get to a phone as soon as you can. So yeah, Henry and, was 
Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I made mental note of that too, that uh, just generally it sounds like that's a good idea. If you see somebody doing something illegal, that rather than confront them yourself, write down their license plate. So I, I made a little mental note of that, <laughs> Steve. So uh, these young boys, so Hank is what he was called when he was a kid. Henry reaches in, grabs the keys, and throws them where they can't find them. Now, that took a lot of nerve. Did you know of anybody that did such a thing? Oh, yeah. I, I know people that would do this, like this kind of, that kind of thing, including myself. Uh, so. I, <laughs> I was wondering that. Were you that young when you've done something like that? Yeah, I, in fact, there's this, another scene in the book where Henry's, uh, before he becomes a game warden, he, he does a ride along with with uh, another uh, warden, Austin, and they they're he's they, he sets Henry up as as a to stake out this area right next to the uh, the shooting area of the Sacramento Wildlife Refuge and and. Uh, Henry watches as as these guys come out of the refuge carrying these ducks, and then they throw them outside the refuge to their to one of their brothers, so he can take the ducks away, and then that'll allow them to kill more bucks, ducks that uh, than the law the the law allows. And uh, I actually, what what was the what caused me to write that was I actually had seen it seen, seen exactly like that when I was a when I was a boy, and, and another young boy and my and I were were hunting at the time in the refuge, and we saw this, and then and then I, we reported it. I don't know that they ever caught the guys, but but that's what that memory was. What uh, uh, inspired that scene. inspired that scene? Yes. Well, we as a reader feel like we're riding along with Henry and this game warden, and it's all pretty new I think to most of us I had no idea what it would be like to ride along with a game warden and so you let us in on that you let us ride along and see what it's like to be with a game warden and of course you had your own dad to ride along with yes you had a lot of experience to draw on when you were writing this book well the 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 book itself is probably uh, the, the number one inspiration for that book was probably a night that I spent with my dad. I think I was about 14 years old uh, down in the Willis Rice Fields. And uh, we were walking out of one of the levees and all these ducks are flying in and out of, of the of the wetlands there over right over the tops of our heads because it's dark and they don't know that we're there. And uh, I started asking my dad questions and he started talk, telling me the story about duck draggers, which I describe in the book and what they, what they did and, and uh, what they were actually market hunters, killing ducks and then selling them to restaurants. And so that was the main, the, probably the number one inspiration for the, for the beginning of the book. After a break, I'll be back with author Stephen Callan and we'll continue our conversation about the work of game wardens. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with Palisadro author Stephen Callan. He has won awards for his books. He has written fiction and nonfiction, and today his nonfiction book is The Game Warden's Son. And you throw in little color 
points that those of us who are familiar with Chico and Northern California recognize places like Wozni's Barbecue Place or Pioneer Week that used to be a really big deal uh, on the Chico campus. And you have mentioned, uh, one of the characters mentions what uh, says Chico has no shortage of trees. That's what Chico's famous for, tree-lined streets, Chico State College, and Bidwell Park. I read that the original Robin Hood was filmed in Bidwell Park. And another character says, Hank, you're a wealth of information. And here's a sentence I liked, Steve. Hank says, Henry, says, I'm curious about life, Larry. We don't have much time on this planet, and I want to learn everything I can while I'm here. And I think I can imagine those words being spoken by you, Steve. I, I think you could say that. I, I would say that about you also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have your, uh, this friend of his saying to a friend of his, the main character says, I'm curious about life. We don't have much time on this planet and I want to learn everything I can while I'm here. And in his case, it was about nature. And we go, go along for the ride and learn about nature in the process. So Henry goes along, he gets his degree in college, but something that happens when he's there, he meets this young woman who has his same interest. Now she doesn't tell him how much experience she has and how much she knows about birds and these places that he's taking her. So describe this young woman for us, Steve. Well, let's see, Anne is about five foot seven, long brown hair has a gorgeous smile and she's a she's an avid bird watcher her mother and she uh, were belong to a local Audubon group and they she knows birds by this by the the songs they make and she knows everything there is about birds and Henry immediately you know needless to say becomes infatuated with her and and then she, and I'm, I'm i don't want to go too far because i'll end up scribing the story <laughs> no don't don't spoil things for the reader but she's another very sympathetic character we like her from the very beginning and you mentioned her name is ann so when henry graduates then he's going to have to leave ann doing her things while he goes on with his training and something that I found was interesting because I, I thought this was probably maybe even true for you, but true for a lot of young men, um, that there's an exam, and this happened to come up in March, graduation was coming in June, and Henry, beginning in early February, took exams every Saturday morning for seven weeks straight, and he applied for a lot of positions. Chico police officer, city of Sacramento fireman, state insurance investigator, state narcotics enforcement agent, fisheries biologist, state park ranger, and fish and game warden. And so his friends want to know, well, good grief, how many exams are you going to take, Henry? And why did he take that many exams? They said, they said well, don't tell me you're planning to be a narc. And he says, nope, I'm not planning to be a narc. Then why did you sign up to take so many exams? And yeah. what does Hank tell them? He tells them that, that the, for the same reason that Larry takes batting practice, so he can he has a better opportunity to get a good hit when he gets up. Henry took all these exams as practice for the actual job he really wanted, which was to be a fish and game warden. Now, did you take more exams? Because I assume this is a, a fact that uh, these young men take exams for these various positions. And did you do that? Yep, I did. <laughs> yeah, about the time I was graduating from uh, from Chico State, there I started taking I, I, just about every Saturday for quite a few weeks. You know, started taking these different tests to uh, to exit. You know, not that I ever wanted to be some of those things, but I didn't want to be an insurance investigator or anything like mm -hmm. that. But it was, it was good practice, and and a lot of those kind of exams are are similar in their in the way they're set up so the answer is yes in fact um and you a grad student who took an exam in uh, german and he said he really didn't know that much german he had to have a reading knowledge but he knew how to take tests 
Exactly. And he said that stood him in good standing, just his experience as a test taker. So that's what you're saying, that the more of these exams you took, the better you could do on the one that was really important to you. Exactly. You're not as nervous, you're more relaxed. You, you pretty much know what to expect or just different questions. My guest is Stephen Callan. He's a former game warden himself, and he writes books about game wardens. His previous two books have been nonfiction. Now he has a fiction book, a mystery, a Henry Glantz mystery, The Case of the Missing Game Warden. And his main character now has graduated college. He's taken various exams for what he might want to have as a career. And then there's something interesting you said in your book, you have one of your characters say, Gridley is one of the best wardens position in the state. And why did this character say that Gridley was such a great place for warden? Well, if you're a fishing game warden, most, most of them that I ever knew wanted to be where there were, was lots of hunting and fishing activity. And, and Gridley, at least in those days, was about as good as it, as it was. You had the Feather River with salmon and, and you had uh, hundreds of thousands of waterfowl every, every winter season down in the Butte Sink and in the, the flooded areas uh, in lower Butte County. And then you had the mountains where you had, you, uh, had the high lakes and uh, you could work trout, you could work salmon, you could work waterfowl. And at that time, the pheasants were everywhere in, in Butte County. Uh, so it was like a paradise for a warden. And, and my dad worked over there occasionally with, with other wardens, but also I, I knew the warden who was actually, who was actually the district warden in, in Gridley at, in, in the 1950s. So, and, and he told me stories about how he, he didn't even, he was disappointed when his day off came around because he was enjoying <laughs> having so much fun you know, chasing these poachers around. So that was another inspiration for the book. Well, you have your main character go off to an academy for training. And I was surprised how long it is. You say, uh, one of the characters says, you'll have to go through the training course before you become a California peace officer. I think it's eight or 10 weeks now, maybe longer. And then he wants to know, well, where do I go for that? And where... I assume that that was the case for you, that you went into this training program that was probably at least 10 weeks. Is that true, Steve? That's true. When I, when I came on the job, it was, in, it was uh, at the Sheriff's Department Academy in Riverside. And it was, I went, it was about eight or 10 weeks. I couldn't remember exactly, but um, that was exactly the truth. It was kind of like almost uh, military type uh, training where you had to have your hair cut look sharp every day and, and you did uh, with combination of of in of in the in the classroom and then part of it was physical training and learning you know tactics uh, hand-to-hand combat and all that kind of stuff and are you also from southern california like your hero in the book is well i i grew up in san diego until i was 11 and then my dad transferred uh, to Orland. And so from the time I was born until I was 11, I was in, in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Then actually we spent a, a year and a half in Westminster also when my dad was on Marine Patrol in the LA area. Yeah, because I did mention that you went to high school in Orland. Right. And um, so your story uh, is, we learn a lot when we read your book, we learn about, um, like I mentioned, the training that uh, these, the warden, game wardens have. And then I don't want to spoil it too much because your book is a mystery. <laughs> but you, you have these experiences that you have your main character going through, like going through the academy and studying uh, law enforcement. Now, I mentioned that I don't want to spoil this. But what else would you like listeners to know about this book you've written, Steve? Well, I, like I said, I think I began it when we first began. I said I'd like to include a conservation message in everything that I write. And uh, 
I tried to include uh, parts about the, the effect on habitat that development has had. And I, I mentioned the Williamson Act in the book where Anne and, and uh, Henry are driving around and she talks about you know how fast Chico is growing and, and the need to preserve you know wildlife habitat in and around Chico area. And that's the case just about everywhere in California. Um, Temecula where Henry was uh, was raised is now nothing, it's a big city. Whereas when I was down in that area uh, when I, as a young game warden, it was still out in the country and there's still a lot of wildlife habitat there. But that, that was one of the main issues I wanted to explain that uh, subtly that how important habitat is and how important it is to, do, to uh, preserve it. Well, one thing that comes across for me also, Steve, is an appreciation of the job that you guys, well, you're retired now, but that these guys do, because I think we think, oh, they just go out and ride around in their truck, but it can be very dangerous. And I think we don't often appreciate that. You have kind of a scary uh, part where um, Henry thinks there might be, would be outlaws paying attention to his work routine and where he parked his truck when he was off duty. And so I think we gain an appreciation of the lovely work you do, but also it can be uh, dangerous too. Did you ever feel in danger yourself? I've had a lot of situations when I was working. I had situations where I was told later that, you know, one of the guys that I, one of the outlaws I had been looking for at the time had a had had a rifle trained on me while the whole time I was down in down in this camp talking to his friends. Um, that that makes your 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 heart beat a little faster. And uh, but every everybody who's who's been a career in law enforcement and and wildlife law enforcement is almost as dangerous as, in fact, in what in some ways more dangerous than other law enforcement officers because most of the time you're by yourself and you're out. And, you could be two hours away from backup, whereas a city policeman or highway patrolman, you know, their backup's going to be there in, in 10 minutes, you know, so um, it's it's dangerous. And these days, it's even more dangerous. A lot of these wardens are dealing with these marijuana growers, and, and these are, you know, hardened criminals, a lot of them. And, and so well, that's kind of been my impression, too, that it's more dangerous now than it has been in the past. It, it sure could. I think as a whole, it is. But you know, even in those days, you never know who you're going to run into. It depends on, on the situation. Well, thank you for helping us learn about the role of game wardens and the work that they do in helping protect the environment and nature for us. So thank you, Steve. Well, thank you, Nancy. I can't take thank you enough for having me on your show. And I really enjoyed myself and I really appreciate it. And next, we have a segment we call The Writer's Room, and it features writers from around the North State. Pax Humanus. We, the upright beasts with two-eyed seeing, stand alone on a hill of our making, assuming dominion or our lessers, and staking our future in concrete, metal, and stone. We look across the land, make a sweep with our hands, and claim, I own. And still it's not enough. We turn from our brothers, deem them others, and split ourselves in two, and two cleave into four or six or more, and then the war speak ensues. In this quest for control, for power, we ravage hillsides till all the flowers are gone. We spoil the water till fish no longer spawn, crops no longer grow, and we ourselves no longer dare to drink. I fear we're on the brink. Oh, Humanus, can you not see that life is best when there's a we, when our genius works for the good of the earth, when all creatures thrive? Is it not worth a try? Pox in wisdom. Pox, we lift up our hearts. Pox, we shine. Pox, Humanus, now is the time. This is Sybil Hunt. Sky Glider above the Santa Cruz boardwalk. Sky Glider floats above the crowd, hovers over and above the crowd, a spectacle to behold. Behold, a dream of elevation. Behold, 
a dream of escape. Escape all attention, dispense no favors, judge none other than one's self. Self-interested and sublime, Skyglider is a perfect fiction, a willing, milling, million people's dream. Dream of purpose, dream of goals, dream a reason to be. Be in this world, having created it. It appears there's nothing to do but ride around this world in circles, ignoring countless pleas for intervention. He is indifferent. For a miracle, he is powerless. For hope, he is hopeless. Helpless is Skyglider, hovering above this world of goals and outcomes, predictions and rewards. Reword the litany of the log flume. Chant down the ceremony of the tilt-a-whirl. Upend the blessing of the bumper cars. Cars he rides in endless circles, first this way, then that. That he hovers above the milling millions he created means nothing. Nothing but why. Why, asks he, who hates the world he created, because he is not, can never be part of it. It pains him to wonder who made him, why they took the trouble to make Skyglider. Rob Davidson. Muse, wear me like clothing. Fade into my skin as I unfurl for you like an oyster shell or a work shirt bleached by sunlight. I've hung on the line for so long, here under the moon, to make this dark space inside, where a song can suffer and grow. Mouth, mouth, move against me. You will sing, and then you will sing, then you will go. Then I will sing, then I will sing, and then go. Troy Jollymore. Wolf OR93. It was hunger, not the lust I imagined, or the wasted no shame howl you sang. Your legs shattered on the side of the road, a cemetery, a ghost sorrowing through grass in winter. I read about you on the news, wondered how to calculate lonely. What level would you be besides the highest? Not hunger not love, I am still measuring the word. Ivy Liebenberg. For more information on the writers you've just heard, go to mynspr.org and click on the poetry link. You've been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.